podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. And Phil, well, being a snooker fan is never boring these days, but well, the qualifiers has been as dramatic and as thrilling as ever. And we've just enjoyed Judgment Day or Judgment Days. And oh, boy, what drama. Yeah, hi. Good to be here as always. Yeah, Judgment Days and Nights. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's constant tension. And there weren't, there was only one decider. So it didn't feel quite as tense as some other years sometimes. But every frame is really, every frame of the qualifiers right back going back last week. Um, I remember watching one in the first round. I think it was Jamie Clark against Julian Boyko. And Clark potted a, a black about two frames in and he gave it a fist bump. And I thought, well, you can see how what this means to everyone from the get-go. So, yeah, it felt like that. Very edgy, very tense all week, but it makes for great watching. It really does. And, of course, all the qualifying from Easter Monday onwards was was excellent. And while we're dishing out compliments for each other, you know how we sometimes like to do that, Phil, you know. <laughs> probably no one else will. I did like your t- tweet a little bit earlier tonight saying that, of course, many people tuning in Saturday, it's not remotely a criticism of them, because we can't all be a snooker anorax after all. They'll see that as the start, won't they? The, the, the start of the tournament. But, of course, people like us that follow the game inside out, and, uh, you know, certainly for the players involved, it's anything but the start. They've already sort of sweated, you know, you know blood and tears to get through the qualifiers. So it's really interesting, that sort of dynamic, isn't it, that, we're going to look forward now to a 17-day marathon. But the pleasing thing more and more is that the qualifiers is being seen as quite an event in its own right. Yeah, and it's huge. It feels like it's been going on for a long time. And it has, really. It's 10 days. It feels a long time ago. I was watching uh, Rianne Evans play Andy Hicks on that first morning. God, it seems, it seems a month ago. Um, and, yeah, the guys who've come through, um, I don't think, am I right in saying no one's come in from the first round? But people have come from the second round. Um, so they've been playing a long time and, you know, it's, it's an extra week or so to be away from home. You've got to talk to us guys after the match on TV and on Zooms and stuff. It's tiring. It's so up and down in emotions as well. Obviously, um, they're going to be on a high, but then they're going to probably come down and then get back up again for the Crucible. So, yeah, it's a whole it's a whole storyline narrative that goes on for quite a long time before a lot of people turn on the TV on Saturday and think it's all just starting then. Um, but as you say, you know, not everyone's going to be following um, Zhao Jimbo versus Ross Muir on the Eurosport app, are they? So that's fine. I mean, I mean, who who are the mad ones, Phil? If we is it, is it <laughs> yeah. the ones that are doing that? I mean, well, should we say the jury's out? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but one thing to say before we get into into the Pacific matches is that the round the table service we've seen uh, fronted by Rob Walker and Ken Doherty was, I think, a real success. And I think it works brilliantly in sport. I know we're both general all-round sports fans. I see it a lot with the NFL that, to me, have perfected it with their red zone service every Sunday. Uh, Football does it occasionally, certainly on European nights, but the rights are a bit more complicated there. It's it's often a rights issue where it can't be done more Mm. often, frankly, with more sports. But it really worked, didn't it? Because you cannot get bored for a minute. And I thought the direction was very good as well. And the choices they made, 
They were switching to frames if there was only a couple of balls left somewhere, going somewhere else for a decent break, back to another important part of another frame. And I thought that whole dynamic for the last two days was was thoroughly enjoyable and, and worked really well. Yeah, agreed. Um, those guys did it really well. Um, Rob's got so much energy, which I think he needs for that gig. And I think it's, you know, it's probably 10 hours on each day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, there's a lot going on. But you could, if you sort of dip a bit in your energy levels, you might struggle to think of things to talk about too much. But Rob will never run out of energy. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I think I'd like to see it in other tournaments if possible. As you say, sort of rights issues and logistical issues, it works so well then. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, you you never get stuck in a slogging slogging out frame. Just skip onto another table, and uh, especially when they're all sort of coming to a climax. There's a they, there was a bit of a peak on uh, on Wednesday evening where a few a few games were all ending all at once, and it really felt like you know it felt like a bit of a golf tournament when you're flicking around to holes when people are sort of coming towards the end. It's a bit exciting. You'll know more about that than me, but um, yeah, I had that vibe to it a bit. No, it was really good. Um, where does Rob Walker get his battery power? I mean, I know <laughs> I know it's his runs, his running, of course, and you know a very fit chap and everything, of course, but. Goodness me, you know, he, he's got some stamina, hasn't he? As you say, those very, very long days. And he'll do it, of course, now throughout all those long days at the Crucible, introducing the players and doing all his other various media duties. So, yeah, his stamina is really something to behold. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a lovely service, really enjoyable the last two days. And, you know, it, it's good because you could dip in and out of it as well and kind of keep in touch with it that way and have to sort of watch it all, all the time. But you still felt you were keeping abreast of events. Uh, well, we obviously started on Tuesday uh, with uh, the first eight places out of the 16 uh, to be decided uh, for the Crucible, to join the top 16, of course, uh, were already there. A bit difficult to know where to start. Um, well, I guess a, 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 no one would argue with the, with the place to start being Mark Davis coming back to beat Jamie Clark at 10-8. I mean, 7-2 down Davis. I mean, he himself said he didn't remember having a comeback quite like that in his career. It's the 11th time he's qualified for the Crucible, and I think it's 1994 he was first there, so heavens above, that's, uh, you know, a a long old time now. And, well, where did that come from? Because, you you know, 7-2 is a funny one, because, as I think a a few people on Twitter are pointing out, if you then win the first mini-session after that, even if it's only 3-1, you get to 8-5, you've got half a chance. You know, there's quite a big difference between that and 8-1, really. But nevertheless, you know, you, you made Jamie Clark a very good favourite there at 7-2 up. But Mark Davis, what tenacity and one of the most dramatic matches of Judgment Day, frankly. Yeah, probably the most. Um, I mean, he's just such a solid player and has been for so long. He's, I don't know, we've talked about this sort of underrated, overrated thing, whether it exists or not, probably doesn't. But... Um, <laughs> He, he sort of he's never talked about, is he? And he's had such a great career, um, going strong for all this time. Um, but yeah, I mean, Clark had won three games to get there, um, three good good games as well. He'd come back from five 0 down to beat Jamie O'Neill, which was mad. And then sort of handily saw off Joe Perry in the previous round, which um, will have been a shock with the bookmakers. Um, so then to be take maybe. Maybe he just sort of saw the winning line a bit too early, but to be fair to him, don't want to criticise him. Mark Davis played very well. I think I think it was six half centuries on the spin, um, so he was he was making no mistake there really. Uh, and yeah, just 
he's qualified more than anyone else in history, so he just knows what he's doing there. Doesn't feel the pressure. No, that's that, that's a really good way of saying it. Uh, elsewhere, we saw Liang Wenbo beating Lu Ning 10-7. Obviously, Liang, Liang Wenbo has, you know, been there and done it in terms of ranking events. So, you know, he, he could well do OK at the Crucible. That'll be interesting to see. Uh, Liam Highfield beating uh, Zhu Yulong at 10-7. Uh, a second appearance at the Crucible for Highfield. And, it, I mean, you can see how much event to a lot of players, Phil. That's a sort of... Um, one of the joys for us as journalists and, and for fans as well to see on, on Judgment Day. But it meant a lot for Highford, didn't it? He's had his health problems in the past, in, in recent times. And just to get back there, I mean, punching the air, what delight for him. Yeah, because that was quite a big shock, really. I think Zhu was, for many people, um, the favourite to get there. You know, he's not behind, not far behind sort of Bingham and Carter, people talking like that about his chances. Um, and Liam Highfield is one of those players that, really doesn't get a mention very often. We've, I think I've said before, there's sort of a chunk of players between sort of 30 and 50-odd in the world that are just, they always do sort of similar stuff. They're never like going to be dropping off the tour, but they're never challenging. They just don't get a mention a lot. And I'd say Highfield's in that group. Obviously, when he's playing well, he's great. Um, and yeah, 10-7 win against the Jew is very, very impressive. Um, and I'd even forgotten he'd been at the Crucible before, to be honest. I think it was five or six years ago, was it? Um, but yeah, um, hopefully it's a bit of a kickstart for him because I know he's very sort of highly rated as a as a teenager, and so he's done he's done all right since then, but not really kicked on as much as he possibly could have done. So maybe this will be a bit of a boost. Well, it, it, indeed, let's hope let's hope that proves to be the case. Uh, another one was Tian Peng Fei beat Graham Dot ten seven. I made a bit of a joke on Twitter saying I, I could watch those rascals battle it out on the colours all night. I mean. Um, I overrated it a bit, but that that was um interesting match as it developed. I mean, Tempen Fang was miles ahead, but mm. typical Graham Dot not giving up. And uh, that's a second appearance for Tempen Fei as well. He he played there a couple of years ago. And Stephen McGuire, I think it was, he lost to actually. Uh, so that was an, another interesting one. Uh, Jamie Jones against Lee Hang. I mean, again, I've seen some punches of the air in my time, Phil, mm-hmm. but... Jamie Jones, when he got over the line, good gracious. We know about his ban uh, for a year of falling off the tour. I think you spoke to him, didn't you, uh, uh, afterwards? Or certainly as part of a Zoom, he put up a very interesting article. Mm. He's reached the last eight. I totally forgot that back in 2012, that he'd, that he'd, beat the, you know, he'd beaten Sean Murphy along the way to get to the last eight. Totally slipped my mind that. But he beat Lee Hang 10-5. And yeah, he's been through the mill in many ways. And uh, he'll be just ecstatic to be back at the Crucible, won't he? Yeah, he got very emotional. It was actually after he beat Michael Holt in the previous round that he sort of choked up a bit in an interview with Rob Walker. Um, and yeah, he, he's, he really was in a really dark place. He said he'd had really bad mental health issues while he was away from the tour because he didn't know if he'd ever get back on if his snooker career was finished. And he was working for the council back in Neath, sort of cutting grass, which he actually said, I didn't want that to be too much of like a down and out story. He said he really enjoyed it. He was working with all his mates, just having a laugh. Um, but obviously... <laughs> Obviously, he wanted to be a snooker player again, and uh, and he has, and yeah, he's been really impressive. Um, got to a semi-final early in the year, and I think he's ranked in the 60s now, but he's much better than that. Um, no one's going to want to play him. He sort of not strolled through qualifying, but um, you know, mate, he won most games fairly comfortably. A 10-5 against Lee Hang in in that last round, and yeah, he's looking good, and he's clearly in such a good place 
um, mentally with his game, with his personal life. Another one with his fitness. He's been running a lot. Um, so, yeah, he's only going to go up and up in the game in the next few years, I think. And the whole band thing is a bit, you know, it, it's a bit of stigma around getting banned for sort of betting-related things, but it was for failing to report an approach. You know, there was no um, suggestion of him fixing matches or anything like that. So I think it is definitely a, an all-round good story that he's back and feeling good and playing well. Uh, definitely. And uh, a match that I saw bits of, and every time I saw it, it looked terrific, was Liu Haoshan against Chang Bing Yu, uh, which uh, went the way of Liu Haoshan 10-6. I mean, Chang Bing Yu's only 18. He looks to have a, a pretty promising future. Uh, he made a, a thumping break, a one three five in the opening frame, but I guess experience uh, told there in the end. But, you know, a, a really interesting match. And, uh, you know, Champing you want to keep an eye on for all of us, I think. Yeah, well, he he sort of caused pretty big shock by knocking out Tom Ford, who would have been one of the favourites to come through qualifying. Um, but, yeah, I, I think I was the same as you, just sort of was dipping in and out of that one. Um, we weren't really sure what to expect from Liu Haoshan. He, he just got past Gao Yang, who's another exciting young, young player. But then... He got the walkover against Nopong because he tested positive. Um, so he went straight through to the last one, um, which, you know, you'd take it, obviously, but you may be not as match sharp as if you'd played that game. Um, I think that was a bit of a relief for everyone, obviously not for Nopong, but when he tested positive, he plays at the Ding Jinhui Academy and there was a bit of panic about how many other people might be uh, either test positive or have to isolate as well because they'd have been around him, but... Thankfully, they got round it. However, they did that. It was only Nopan who missed out. So, obviously, terrible news for him. But I suppose it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, no, definitely. And two matches that we had a quick exchange before we went on air, actually. Kind of surprising that they were so one-sided, really. Uh, Matt Sell easily beating Scott Donaldson at 10-3 and Kurt Mafflin uh, dispatching uh, Robert Milkins at uh, 10-4. Mathlin went well ahead in that match, actually, against Milkins. Milkins wasn't really uh, involved in that match at all. And obviously, Kurt Mathlin has happy recent experience with the Crucible, reaching the quarterfinals uh, uh, last year. Matt Selt should have been there more. I think, is it, is it Selt's second appearance only? Or maybe his third appearance, actually, sorry, at the Crucible, Selt. I mean... Okay, you can say this about a lot of players. It's not easy, not easy being on tour, not easy to qualify. But it feels like this should be more than his third time, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, he's one of those that, yeah, looks like when he's playing well, you think oh, he should have done a lot more in the game. And I think he, I think he said that himself. Um, I, yeah, I looked at the head to head before that because I thought it looked like a fairly even game. And I think Donaldson had won every single game they played against each other. Um, but, it looked like Salt had been playing well. He had that good run in Gibraltar. Obviously, that game against Hendry that everyone watched, he looked absolutely su- superb in that. Um, but I thought, you know, the head-to-head often are worth looking at. Um, so I thought it might even itself out and be quite close. But, you yeah, know, one-sided, really. I think he... I know Mafflin was the first man through that that night, but Salt was the first onto our Zoom chat. And, yeah, he was loving life. Um, excited that his young child will get to see him at the Crucible for the first time. He was looking forward to that. Um, and yeah, he looks to have um, found some form at the right time. It, it'll be it'll be interesting to see who he draws because he could be quite dangerous. No, I'd agree with that. Uh, and then we moved on to Wednesday's action. Well, I think it's fair to say, Phil, one thing we were really missing from Tuesday: you need debutants, don't you? You need 
those players that haven't been there before. It had such a, a special flavour. And, uh, well, of course, we were guaranteed one with Mark Joyce against Igor Figueiredo. And uh, Joyce, who uh, some people talk about as maybe the best player to have not made it to the Crucible. Well, he has now at the age of 37. And he was kind of delighted, but kind of a, a... I was quite impressed by the calmness about him, really. And I think he's almost like... Maybe, maybe the overriding feeling with him was, was just relief. Yeah, I think that's fair, especially because sort of in a game that he was expected to win. He's ranked a lot more high, higher than Figueredo. Um, and yeah, as you say, it sort of, um, I don't know, it sort of sounds a bit like a compliment, the best player never to be at the Crucible, but also <laughs> isn't really. Um, so I'm, I'm sure he's he's glad to get that monkey off his back. Because um, yeah, he's, he's, he's very good on his day. Um, it's very it's surprising he's never been there, um, for sure. Um so yeah, yeah, I, I saw I saw the same. Like, it's just more sort of few. Let's get let's get that over with and get there now. But um, yeah, he beat Hamilton in the previous round, so I watched that game. Um, yeah, solid player. Yeah, it's surprising he's never been there before. Hamilton doing television, of course, Phil. That 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 reminds me. I'm not saying we made it happen. It was probably down to Eurosport as well, not just us. But um, we're gonna we're gonna enjoy that, aren't we? As a little aside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. I spoke to him, and he was really looking forward to it. Um, I spoke to him before he played Joyce, actually, and um, I said, "Well, don't get too excited about it because you could still win the tournament." But he, he is out now, so we will be doing some commentating. <laughs> well, another debutant uh, that we'll see at the Crucible is Sam Craigie, uh, who beat Zhao Zintong. Ten uh, nine. That was the only decider, wasn't it? Which was and the last match to be completed. Funnily enough, that's perhaps one thing we did miss. Perhaps one those ones that go right to the death. There was plenty of drama, but perhaps we missed those uh, deciders. But Craigie held his nerve, played really well in the decider, actually. And then, how would you describe him to the press? Uh, on the, I'm going to use the word spiky. Is, would that be unfair? He he was he was hard work, wasn't he, for the assembled press? I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think Spikey might be a bit... I think he reminds me a bit of what Andy Murray used to be a bit like in interviews where he just didn't want to do them particularly and didn't didn't really hide that fact especially. He was not rude or anything, um, but fairly short answers. And if he doesn't want to answer a question, he'll make that quite clear. <laughs> um, I, I did a piece with him last year and... On the phone with him, it was absolutely fine. I think it maybe it's just like a group thing he didn't like so much. Um, but yeah, in, uh, interesting guy actually. Um, uh, I'll I'll tweet that piece I did with him actually because it, it was quite good. He was sort of didn't like how a lot of commentators spoke about him um, and wanted to prove them wrong, which hopefully he will do now. He's at the Crucible. Um, yeah, he's a really good player. He sort of looked like when he's well, I've said this about a lot of players, but sometimes when you see him, you think, how has he not done more? And he's a lot higher ranked. Um, but yeah, the, he looked very good this week, beating Hugh Gill and then beat Vafai six nil. I think Vafai was probably favourite to win that game to get whitewashed. And then, yeah, everyone talks about how good Jin Tong is. Everyone's as he's uh, uh, as talented as any of the Chinese players. So to beat him over nineteen frames in the decider, because even the decider, he went all the way there, but it didn't get too tense really because he cleared it. He made a ninety odd in the, in in that frame. So yeah, very impressive from him. It's going to be interesting. Um, to see who he gets, he's quite he's he's good to watch. So 
hopefully he gets a big name. I think the point is, isn't it, one of them that he was, he 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 did like to party, he liked a good time, but he's kind of not doing that anymore. And he his suggestion was that people are still painting him as that kind of person, but he's moved on and we haven't. Is that kind of about right? Yeah, I think I think that probably happens with sort of the players you don't see very often, and there might be something that has happened a long time ago that sort of sticks with them, and because they're not on TV that much, that when they pop up, that's the only thing that people remember about them so they say it but yeah he was quite keen to point out that that's not the case anymore um but yeah we'll see if anyone mentions anything like that when he plays the crucible maybe he'll just come straight back we'll see <laughs> indeed well another result to, that emerged from wednesday is chris wakelin beating zhao gudong at 10-7 uh, wakelin will be uh, the crucible for the second time and then phil well what what an hour that was for uh, for us snooker journalists to enjoy, because it was big name after big name for about an hour, all coming through, all having one, and all really interesting interviews. And I know I was sort of making a joke about this on social media, but you didn't have to be Jessica Fletcher or Columbo to join mm-hmm. the dots on, on this one. It was about players getting themselves fit, uh, getting themselves in a good place physically, and frankly, feeling better for it. Healthy body, healthy mind. It made me think, God, I've got to try to go back to the Lido soon and try and get myself in a little bit of a, a, a better place myself on, on that front because it was quite inspiring. Stuart Bingham was one of them. He's obviously, you know, feeling good about things. Uh, he beat Luca Purcell 10-5, and that was a really hard game for both of them, really. Mm. Neither of them would have wanted that. But, but Stuart can obviously be dangerous for anybody. Then we had Ali Carter, who, who beat Alexander Urson back at 10-4. Ali was in such a, a good place, I thought. Really happy, really buzzing. And I know I said it before, I won't go into it again. But for me, it's a good thing for snooker. Ali Carter at the Crucible. That's much what must-watch TV for me. Yeah. And then Ricky Walden, also in a good place. Beat Ryan Day 10-5. And, you know, again, like so many snooker players, we're so lucky. They're, they're all so thoughtful and open and contemplative. And Ricky was like, I thought I was done you know, mm. with my back issues. And and some physios kind of, you know, put a dampen on his prospects for the future as well. But, you know, he, he's back. He's looking good. He's feeling good. He's really getting to his running again. And I'll come to the other uh, sort of bigger names in a minute. But those three kind of are all lumped together because they all seem to be in a good place. And, boy, they're all dangerous, aren't they, at the Crucible? Oh, yeah, for sure. They've all been top ten before. Um, yeah, that was interesting with Walden because I sort of put that to him on the Zoom. So sort of, I think he's been as high as six in the world, and obviously he's had these issues that nearly saw him retire. He thought he might have to retire. Um, but he's coming back, seems to be getting better and better. And I sort of asked him where he plays his game now compared to where he was at his peak when he was re- winning events, and he reckons he's playing better now than he ever has done. And I know I know players say stuff like that sometimes. It might not necessarily be true, but he is looking good. I mean, he comfortably beat Ryan Day, which is no easy task. Um, so yeah, I don't think if he is if he is playing as well as he ever has done, that is a tough draw for anyone. As is Ali Carter, and certainly as is Stuart Bingham. Um, I mean, not many people come through qualifying, and you'd be like, oh, I definitely want to play them. But it does seem like there's a few you definitely want to avoid. Yeah, and the the proof will be the pudding for this, but Ali was kind of suggesting, yeah, I know I've been a bit, I think he said, I, I know I've been Mr. Angry in the past, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to 
tone that down. I'm trying to sort mm-hmm. of, you know, slightly rid myself of that a bit. Listen, everyone's got their own character. That's part of who he is. We'll see what happens when he's in those tight spots of the crucible. But listen, if he's if he's getting himself into a good place mentally, you know, I said to him, you know, you sound like you're playing it down a bit. You're saying, you know, you've got a bit of a free run. He's going there to win the tournament. I mean, of course, it's going to be a hard, hard ask, but he's going there to win it. Yeah, and I, I said to him as well that I mean, he's won an awful lot of matches since January, a lot of short-form games, but he's beaten most of the top 16 in uh, in one form or the other. Um, and yeah, it's funny, the whole Mr Angry thing, because whenever you speak to him, he's a really nice bloke. Um, but yeah, he's just very, very intense when it comes to the table. And But like you said, I think it's good for Snooker having him there because he makes great television. Really does. Uh, Martin Gould uh, beat Lang- Bay Langning 10-5. Um, really interested by Gould. He may have said it before, actually, but I-, I don't remember him saying it, and certainly not when I've been listening to him. He was talking quite openly about preferring snooker without the crowds. Very interesting to hear that different point of view. Mm-hmm. Most people saying they can't wait for fans to get back. They found it difficult. It's been like practice. He's saying, no, I liked it. Just me, the other player, the referee, just the three of us. That suited me. Uh, and, and it was, you couldn't exactly pinpoint him down precisely the reason. I think it was just a combination of, you know, not the obvious thing, not hearing the sweet rappers and, you know, the phones going off and distractions, but also maybe some of the, the extra pressure it brings. But, you know, I really found that interesting for him to speak his mind like that and say, actually, no, for me, I'm going to find it. He's not wary. I, I said, are you wary about it now, the Chris? Well, he's not that. I'm sure he'll be totally fine. Let's face it, he played for many, many years with crowds. But to hear the other side is all, mm-hmm. nearly always interesting in most situations. And I really found that so in this case. Yeah, I think it's because he had a much better season this season than he had in the last, certainly the last one or previous one. I had a bit of a stinker before. He was, he was nearly off tour. Um, we know that why, why that was as well, though. That was sort of mental health issues he was dealing with. So it certainly wasn't that he was having a problem with the crowd. But I guess sub, sub, subliminally, maybe... Um, well, not even subliminally, you know, he's had better results. So <laughs> I think he even said that, didn't he? It's been working all right for him. So he, he, he's not that keen to change it. But um, he was also saying at the same time that he wants everything to get back to normal as quick as possible. Um, so, yeah, there might be a bit of a transition. But, um, uh, yeah, he'll be fine. He's another one. If he if he turns up firing, no one wants to draw him. Um, he absolutely thrashed Stephen Maguire in the first round last year. And then Maguire just won the Tour Championship. Everyone was, people were talking him maybe this was his year and uh, he didn't get near Martin Gould. Um, yeah, so when he's playing well, he's very dangerous. So it'll be interesting to see who he gets. I think you mentioned that to him tonight, didn't you? And he was kind of uh, saying how pleased he was. And it, he meant that, didn't he? That, that wasn't flannel. He, he he really meant that that was a huge compliment to hear that from Maguire. But, did Maguire say he's better than me, or sort of words like? Yeah, that? so so Maguire's just got a terrible record against Gould. I don't know if he, I don't know if he has beaten him, or certainly Gould's record is much better than his. And yeah, and Gould played him off the table that day in Sheffield, and then Maguire just said, "I can't beat him. He's a better player than me," which is some compliment. Yeah, as you say, from someone who's just entrenched in the top sixteen, often in the top ten. Um, so yeah, obviously. Um, that was a nice thing to hear for Martin. But he said he said himself then when I asked him about that, um, he knows when he's playing his best, he should be a top 16 player. Um, there's been all sorts of reasons why he's not been playing his best, but he's he's moving up the rankings again now. So, you know, you can't rule him out getting, getting there again. 
No, indeed. Uh, and then one more, unless I've, I've missed one, which is not beyond the realms of possibility. Uh, and it's Gary Wilson beating uh, Stephen Hallworth 10-3. Now, it was you that wrote the piece, wasn't it, at the start of the year or late last year? The start of the year, I think, about some of Gary's issues with his own mental health, which, as mm-hmm. you rightly said at the time, was specifically due to his issues with his house and how yeah. and how many problems he's had with that. Well, he, he kind of very much pinpointed that tonight and said, no, my problems aren't really COVID, they're that. Uh, didn't want to go into too much detail because it's obviously scarred him so much. And it's such, it, it's been such a nightmare. That, that's, that's the bottom line. It, and it's been almost worse than I think I, I imagined. But obviously on the table for him, th- this is just such a huge boost. And, you know, <laughs> he's been to the semis and not so long ago. So a, another player that, you know, cliche to say it, but, I don't think any of those 16 seeds will be thinking, oh, hooray, I've got Gary Wilson when he, if he comes out of the draw, eh? Yeah, no, it's all, well, we, they will based on his form this season. He said himself it's been the worst year he's ever had and he has been bad, but for all these reasons, you know, um, for anyone who doesn't know, he just, he says it's not COVID, but it's sort of COVID related because um, he's had all these problems with building work on his house not being done. It's been going on for like two years. Um, but And obviously during COVID, he's got to spend so much more time at home. And it's in a house that is half built. Um, he described it as upside down, living in an upside down house. Still ongoing now, but very nearly done. Um, but yeah, it's re- it's really damaged him and his and his family, um, and it's led to his snooker really snuff- suffering. So um, yeah, very good win for him really, because Holworth's been impressive this season. Two good wins, well, three good wins actually. Sorry, going into this, Dean Young, David Grace, and Jordan Brown. So. I'm sure a few people would have been tipping an upset here and Wilson sort of dispatched him. Um, and yeah, he, he he seemed in a really good place afterwards. Uh, looking forward to getting back to the Crucible. Seemed like this is sort of, you know, he can draw an end in, under those problems. Um, and yeah, two, two years ago, he was in the semi-finals and he beat, who did he beat to get there? He beat Mark Selby, beat Ali Carter. Uh, I forget who he beat in the first round, but then just lost to the eventual champion, Judd Trump, in the semis. Um so, yeah, he can do it over the long format, no question. And if he's found a bit of form, found a bit of confidence, found a bit of a morale boost, as you say, um, not an easy draw. No, and I think we've got a nice mix, haven't we? I, I'd prefer a couple more debutants, I think. And, you know, if we're being greedy, I mean, well, Joyce won't agree with this, but a Brazilian player might have been nice to spread the sort of geography round, of course, but... You know, um, we, we've got a nice mix, you know, some players that have been there once or twice, some really experienced players, some younger ones that have a lot of promise. Uh, so, you know, we, we're very much looking forward to the, the draw taking place on Thursday morning at 11 o'clock. And, Phil, I'm sure that because of the nature of podcasts, people may be listening to us already knowing the draw. We will reflect on that, won't we, in a special programme on Saturday uh, to give you some of the flavour at the start of the World Championship. We'll have give you our views on the games there. But frankly, it's been a quite an awkward week, hasn't it? Because so much is happening. It hasn't been very easy within our own lives and responsibilities to fit in where to do this. But it, it felt like the, the right thing to, to sort of um, talk more about Judgment Day. Because as I say, it, it's, it's becoming more of an event in its own right. I mean, the Hendry White thing helped, but I can sense that even in my office a bit now, they're asking a bit more about who's playing and who's going through. And that probably wasn't happening even three or four years ago. So 
the message is getting through, I think, more and more that it's not just the 17 days. This is now a month long feast, isn't it? And it and, and the rhythms are getting quite nice. I mean, I know people will say the qualifiers could be a bit further away. That's a fair argument. But the rhythms of having the qualifiers, then the draw, then what well, it was media day for quite a few years, but it won't be like that now for obvious COVID reasons. Uh, and then the start of the tournament, it, it's it's a real festival of snooker feel, isn't it? All in that one city. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned before, so everyone talks about the 17 day marathon, but what is it actually? I mean, those 10, 10 days of qualifying, those two days in the middle, which, you know, they're not a rest day, especially for, <laughs> we're very busy doing stuff in between there. So, you know, it's a month really. And uh, I don't want to sound like I can complain. It's great. Love it. Um, but it, yeah, it's, uh, it's all worth watching from the very start of qualifying. And I think that's the point. You can watch it now. That must help with the general sort of going to the wider public, the being able to see so much of it, even if it's just on the Eurosport app and player and some betting websites, most people can get on those nowadays. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's been great already. We'll have very short sort of pause and then into the main event. I, I honestly can't remember now whether we've actually talked about this specifically or not. I know the actual fans in terms of the, the grading I, I feel like we might not have done actually, and feel like we just sort of seen each other mention it on Twitter. Um, I, I was very pleased to get the story in the first place from Barry Hearn that, that he was pushing for this to be a pilot event. Then Barry appeared on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. By the way, the first ever 1,000 downloads for an episode. So thanks very much for that. The support and the reaction to that has been terrific. We really are grateful. Uh, Barry talked about this potential grading system if you like, where he was aiming for the latter stages to be full. Now, if we're on it, I don't want to speak for you, Phil, but I think I thought typical Barry, you know, one of the most optimistic men in the uh, people in the kingdom. And as a, as a, you know, a fully paid up member of the glass half empty community myself, you know, it always fascinates me that kind of optimism, but he's probably aiming for the stars. I think you might have put it. And then he'll be sort of taken down. He might get half full. But of course, he's done it, you know, <laughs> and yeah, the final is going to be a full house. And I, I was actually writing a, a preview piece for Metro earlier today. And I was saying it's actually going to be an extraordinary sight, that isn't it? I mean, it's extraordinary enough to see crowds at any sport. And they've been filtering back slowly. I've been watching a lot of golf in America and the fans are back there. They're still kind of distance. It's obviously outdoors. But to see a theatre and a proper, you know, actual theatre, I know it's used for sport, but it is a theatre packed full like that. When you think about how our lives have been so dramatically uh, life-changingly affected, it's going to be quite a sight. And, well, we just are looking forward to that sight. And we can't believe it in a way, can we? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right. When he said it on to us, we certainly weren't expecting him to say it. Um, I feel like I may have even laughed a bit. <laughs> it sounded, it sounded mental, and we did say to him, like, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah, I mean, we did, we did say to him, like, I don't know, that is ambitious, isn't it? But yeah, you can never doubt the man." Um, and yeah, no, I think you're right because uh, I, I, I was watching back the final from last year, and even 300 people, I was thinking, "Oh, that looks a bit fuller than you would expect for 300 people." And now with a thousand back, obviously we've seen the crucible full thousands of times but in this context it's, it's going to look crazy really um we're just not used to it at the minute 
and we're used to sort of being shown crowds and being expected to be uh, quite shocked and appalled by it <laughs> over the last year. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how many tickets they sell. I know a lot of people still do have reservations and they will, especially over the 100% capacity. But at the same time, there's an awful lot of people who want to get back to normal as soon as possible. So um, I'm sure they'll I'm sure they'll do well enough, the tickets. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. Actually, that, that reminds me, two or three people that I trust quite a lot and are kind of regular uh, crucible attenders have said that um, there are quite a few tickets still knocking about. I think most of them have gone for Ronnie on the first day, as you might expect. But generally speaking, there are quite a few around. I, I presume that the the initial ones are being done on the same basis as last year, where they're in groups and maybe some one, some two, some threes. And obviously, you know, for various life reasons and for your own isolation and groups, it might not be easy to get those people together. So that might be a factor as well. But we'll see. Um, you know, as you say, some people and people I know that absolutely love snooker, they said it's not for them this year. They just don't, it doesn't feel quite right for them. And they'll return, no doubt, to events next season and to the World Championship next year. But for those that do go, of course, you know, safety, absolute priority, but it's still going to be a, a dream ticket as it always is, isn't it, at the Crucible? And we look forward uh, to the tournament so much. Um, just a few more things, actually, Phil. It's been such a busy time for snooker news. Uh, the retirement of Alan McManus. Now, um, that, uh, we were quite surprised, weren't we? we? We both were told about that, that it would, that it might be happening. And then the, the news came through. And actually, you know, um, it could have gone a bit more. But I think, reflecting on it, it's probably quite good timing, really, for his age and where he is and the difficulties of COVID and obviously with a brilliant, uh, you know, broadcasting career, uh, you know, already behind him in some ways, but with many, many years to come, we both had the pleasure and in a way I would say privilege of sitting in on his final press conference. And the one thing that struck me about Alan is not that he's just a great guy, which he has always come across, but how humble he is. Such humility. There's no sort of, I'm Alan McManus, I've done this, I've done that. It's the opposite. You know, he's asking us what we think about the game, isn't he? And, I think heavens above, what what I do for a bit of that man's humility? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was almost too much. Like, I think at one point I was trying to tell him that like, you've done well, Alan. Popular. <laughs> like, yeah, everyone, everyone's going to be really sad about this, Alan. Because um, he, because I think I asked him if he was going to play in the seniors, and he was like, "Well, why would they even ask me?" I was like, "Of course, of course they would." <laughs> um, but yeah, no, yeah, unbelievably humble to the, to the extent where it's sort of almost uncomfortable. But um, yeah, no, great guy. Um, and yeah, I suppose it was a surprise. But then when you think about it, maybe not so much of a surprise, just we didn't think, didn't see it coming. But then speaking to him afterwards, it sounded like he was absolutely at peace with the decision. Um, I think he'd made the decision a few months ago or, um, and it wasn't really based you know, even if he'd got to the Crucible or anything like that, um, I don't think he would have changed it. Um, yeah, he said, honestly, he sounded a bit fed up of playing, to be honest, didn't he? Um, I didn't get the impression he, he he had any regrets about this decision at all, but he'll certainly be uh, broadcasting, commentating, punditing, which, um, you know, as much as we're still loving watching him play sometimes, you know, he's really developed a big following for that. Everyone has got so much respect for his work in that. So we've got that all to look forward to. But, yeah, what a great career. I've said before, he was my favourite player as a kid. Um, yeah. So, 
Yeah, no, I always got a soft spot for him. Yes, I've forgotten that aspect actually, but you, you were certainly having lovely exchanges with him on, on that evening, and I was delighted to speak to him as well. And I, th- I think I asked him generally about his 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 ones that he looked up to the most, the other players, and I think he said something nice like, "Oh, not John Higgins, he's my little mate." But, yeah. but, but I think it was Davison Hendry for him, wasn't it? Really, they, they, they were the two that, and he'd obviously grown up watching Steve, you know, and and to play with him and you know, against him and, and, and then obviously Hendry as well. But the, the other thing I really liked was, you know, he was asked whether, you know, he had a particular highlight. And you'd think he might have gone for his Masters win. That was obviously, you know, his his finest hour. And once a Masters champion, always a Masters champion after all. But no, it wasn't that. It was just turning professional. Mm. Not the Crucible semis, not the tournament winners, not the Masters, turning pro. Said a lot that for me. Yeah, and it sort of it was all part of the humbleness as well. I think he just sort of was pleased with that achievement, and then everything else was a bit of a bonus from there. Um, but yeah, no, incredible career, really long, long, successful career. And he had he had just fallen off tour, but I mean, he could have got back on, I'm sure, if he wanted to. But um, as I said before, I think he's very much at peace with that decision. Um, didn't want to play the seniors. I didn't answer that question that I rose up before, but he's not going to play any of that. He said he might play himself a bit in the future, but it'll very much just be for pleasure. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I was wondering whether he'd be like a Neil Folds type, sort of totally put the cue away, or sort of Doug Mountjoy way. He'll just play. He played forever. He just loved the game so much and just wanted to. But uh, I think a bit of a twixt and tween, as you say, with him. It was sometimes not loads, but but not nothing type thing. I was interested a bit more about the broadcasting future. I mean, in a sense, you know, carry on as before for him. He works for every major broadcaster covering the game in Britain. He's brilliant at doing it. One thing I'd quite like to see, I think, is a bit more of the sort of features from him, the sort of stuff around the game. He did did some for ITV actually recently, you know, looking at some of the sort of ins and outs of the sort of technical side of the game. He's so brilliant at that. That's what I'd like to see more of. But I guess we'll we'll see in time. Uh, we look well, when, when we had um, Anthony Hamilton on, he said that he'd been speaking to Alan about doing stuff like that. So maybe they could get together and do that. That'd be, that would be ideal. I think people would love to see that. Yeah, no, good. that's right. He did say that. Good, well remembered. Uh, so that was McManus. And then on to another, uh, you know, evergreen great, who is still carrying on, and controversially so, and that's Jimmy White. Now, I know that Barry Hearn didn't, didn't sign it in blood when he came on on this <laughs> podcast, but he did, you know, a bit more than intimate it really, didn't he? He said that, you know, Jimmy won't just get a, a wild card now. He'll get it as long as he wants. Now, it was like a long time ago, that White and Hendry now, <laughs> wasn't it? Was it Easter Monday? Goodness me. Um, uh, I mean, Jimmy was awful at times, wasn't he? Let's not beat around the bush. Um, I loved David Hendon at the end of that match because I think, we all knew it would be hyped up a lot. It was perhaps even more than we thought. And maybe we're all a bit guilty of that because people then tuned in expecting some kind of recreation of this gladiatorial magic of the past from these two. It wasn't going to happen. It didn't happen. Um, the standard was awful at times. And Jimmy was really disappointingly bad. And, you know, he, he was saying they've both been a lot better than that, but he was really bad. He was really down on himself. I didn't have a doubt, really, that he would still carry on. 
Barry Hearn suggested he would be given it. He has been. Mark Allen's called it shocking. I'm a bit of a fence sitter. I'm going to see both sides, but I think I just swing towards it being kind of the right thing. I've got a friend that's very generally interested in Barry Hearn, known him a long time and listened to our podcast. And he was really interested by Barry's, maybe not obsession, but kind of fixation, certainly on owing things. Who's Mm. owed what? There is something in that in life, I think. And we can't all have everything balanced out. Sometimes we'll owe things we can never repay to people and vice versa. But I love David Hendon saying at the end of the match, you know, these guys owe us nothing. In fact, if anything, we owe them. And coming back to the Owen thing, Jimmy White's contribution to snooker has been profound. Now, I know some people think it's already been repaid with enough wild cards, but I think it's just about right. But I can see both sides. And now I've sat on the fence so long, <laughs> I'm getting splinters. Over to you, sir. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I can see both sides as well. I, I, think, I think what maybe is a better option is make is make him top of the top-up list or make the top-up list just discretionary and you can give it to who you want because then you're not taking a tour card place away from anyone else. But there's always a place for a top-up in almost every tournament. And then you can say, okay, well, Jimmy can fill in whenever there's a gap. Um, that might be another way around it. So it, so no one can say you're taking anyone's place away from a tour card um, that might deserve it more. Um but at the same time, yeah, I think the tour is big enough for the odd space for a legend. You know, 128 players, you could have a handful of former greats on there. Um, but also, you know, you could say, is it doing him any favours to keep giving it him? Um, he did have that good run not that long ago in Gibraltar, didn't he? Everyone got a bit excited again. But as you say, on the big stage there, um, wasn't great at all. And it was, it was sort of sad to see him afterwards. He was just so dispirited. Um, so down on himself, even during the match. Um, there was a couple of times he'd play a pot and it, they see, it looked all right. And he, he was like hanging his head. It was, um, yeah, it was a tough watch at times. Um, so it isn't, it isn't necessarily, or I don't know, but there's certainly an argument to say it's not necessarily the best thing for Jimmy just to keep giving him the wild cards forever. Um, but yeah, uh, Henry made a good point afterwards just saying, I think he just needs to, try and enjoy it a bit more he said you know he should stop saying he's going to win the world championship when he ain't going to win the world championship just treat it as a as a more a bit of fun and in it'll probably do him the world of good in terms of quality as well um so yeah maybe that's that's a way around it and to put him at the top of the top up list that's an option to know but i'm not i'm not dead against it at all i'm not in the mark allen camp of it being shocking um but I can see that side of it for sure. Very thoughtful as usual from you, Phil. Now, what is the job of a journalist if it's not to get people talking? Now, <laughs> you have done that. Times a thousand, you sent shockwaves through snooker with your Judd Trump piece. I've introduced it, but I want you to talk about it. It's your piece. Judd had some fascinating things to say about the state of snooker, I suppose, and you must have been taken aback by the reaction. It's been quite something, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I, mean, I suppose when, you, when you're writing pieces like that up, you, you think, oh, this could, this could get tongues wagging. Um, but, yeah, it's been very good. Obviously, 
player, a lot of players have sort of jumped on jumped on to it, and uh, because Judge isn't Judge's not ever afraid to talk about stuff, but I suppose he doesn't in depth. You know, I was on the phone to him for an hour, which is a bit of a treat, really, um, and he didn't hold back. And I, I feel like, I mean, I don't want to take too much credit for this because it was all Judge's work, really. I didn't ask him too many questions. He was very, very passionate about this stuff. Um, I sort of open with a general. Um, did is snooker got a problem attracting sort of younger audience in terms of watching and playing? And he really just went <laughs> went off on one uh, in a good way. He had a lot of opinion. Dress code was sort of where he started. Um, commentators um, is where he went. That was sort of the main two points, I guess. Um, and I think the general reaction it did split opinion to an extent. Um, I only saw players reacting in agreement to him, if I'm honest. Um, a lot of fans disagreed, but I would say it's more. it was more in his favour than against him. Um, but yeah, it was It was all just points of don't, Snooker shouldn't be so stuck in the past, it needs to move with times. He, he mentioned golf and tennis a lot in terms of what they wear. Um, he doesn't want to be wearing a five-piece suit all the time, doesn't want to have a waistcoat on in every match. Um and then the commentator, I suppose the commentators was the, the most controversial bit because he didn't name names, but he was talking about the veteran BBC commentators. And, you know, we all know that's only quite a small group of people. Um, and he was he, he had big problems with just how much people talk about old stories. And, um, you know, it's, it seems to be stuck in the past was how he felt. Um, and obviously that that's going to wind people up because a lot of people love that. Um I sort of, I, I'm sort of very similar age to Judd, um, and I'd like a bit of it. I sort of see where he means. You don't want to be, you don't want young people turning on the snooker, and that's all they hear because they're going to get turned off by that. But I don't mind a bit of it. Um, but yeah, no, it was just very interesting because it was very forthright, very honest, and quite strongly held opinions from world number one. So even if you disagree with him, you've got to listen to him. Yeah, and I think everyone has listened to him on this one, and. It struck me that these big BBC documentaries coming out, the Louis Theroux documentaries, um, or his production company, I, I admit when that when I heard about it, I was like, great, I'm a I'm a big nostalgia person. I've never I've never hidden that. But I can certainly see the side of people, and there were a lot of them that were saying, hang on a minute, you know, have we not told these stories before? Is there anything new to say? Shouldn't we be focused on on you know what's happening now? And on that note, a reminder that Eurosports a documentary about last year's semi-finals is coming up on Friday night, which I think is a great time. I'm a, and mm. a, while it reminds me to say, and it, it also struck me about the, was it the 40 years uh, of the Crucible event a few years ago? I really think something good on telly on the Friday night before the tournament actually works quite well. Not necessarily a scene setter, but that, that would work as well. But a nice bit of, you know, nostalgia, but in this case, recent nostalgia, or, or just something really enjoyable on telly. So we're really going to relish that on Friday, that in, that incredible day uh, last August. But I was struck when we heard about these documentaries by how many people were saying, oh, come on. And, you know, maybe we all need to look at ourselves. I mean, there's a tendency, I think, with all these things, sometimes to get a bit carried away and like, yes, we must do this and yes, we must do that. I mean, Snooker has a loyal and and very strong and good audience, but I think we're all singing from the same hymn sheet 
sometimes in in thinking that it could still be bigger snooker and we've certainly had reaction uh, on the back of this Judd uh, piece to us but I think what we're going to do is hold some of that back and maybe have a more in-depth discussion in the summer I think we're conscious that summer's going to be much quieter for us and we're going to try and do more justice to it then but I think I think you're right that, that most players were saying that they kind of agreed and not even the young players I'm Joe Perry was one that came out and said yes I'm agreeing with pretty much all of this and a few others of Joe Perry's kind of age group as well. Yeah, Mark Williams was saying, Robertson as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, maybe we all, each each one of us in the media or, or, or I think a lot, a lot of it in the media actually need to start thinking, yeah, maybe we need to start, you know, taking a little bit away from the past and a bit more on the sort of future. I like to think we, we have a, a fair balance. I mean, other sports do talk about their past as well. I mean, we've just had, you know, the Grand National, for example, and that's an event that creates a huge amount of nostalgia around it. But again, maybe they've got a, you know, the, the right balance in that also it's about Rachel Blackmore winning this race and the stories that are happening now. Maybe sometimes in snooker, we're a little bit too much on those wonderful days of the past, which were great, but they weren't all great, you know. And And I think even people like Cl- Clive Everton, who, of course, you know, we respect as a as a peerless voice and judge of the game. I think I've I'm not misquoting him. I'm sure when I say that even even he thinks those days are glamorized a bit. Sometimes those eighties, it's kind of romanticized a bit more as to how it actually was in reality. So it's an interesting one. I mean, funny enough, Alan McManus was was asking us about it, wasn't he, Phil, on on his mm-hmm. final interview, and he was saying he quite likes the old penguin suit and you know and. Uh, yeah, the dress code is an interesting one because Job were talking about golf, wasn't it? It's a sport I cover a lot and how, how it's changing there a bit, which it is. There's a bit more scope maybe in golf um, than there is in snooker. I don't know. Um, maybe I'm being an old fuddy-duddy, but to me, dress is not really the issue so much. I wasn't so struck by that. Then again, I'm not as young as Judd. So, you know, you could... Yeah, argue, that is a, that is a tricky one, isn't it? Like, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he was he was talking about sort of polo shirts, but keeping smart trousers and shoes. But I'm, I'm not sure about that look either. I think it's just sort of more opening up the discussion and seeing what we could come up with. Because um, I, I mean, I think they look great. I mean, most people look you do you do well to look bad in a in a suit. Um, so I don't think it's not that they look bad, but yeah, I think you just thought it's the whole image. It just seems sort of not what kids want to go and do you know it's maybe it's off-putting um but yeah and then most people were sort of saying yeah you can change it but not you wouldn't change it the world championship which i sort of naturally would agree with then there's the whole argument of well if most people watch the world championship you know there's a whole swathe of people where the only the only snooker they watch is the world championship so if you're not going to change it there is it going to have much impact um so there's loads of discussion and to come out of it and as you say we'll do this more later um, but hopefully the reaction to it is is an open one. You see some people just sort of saying, oh, no, shut up, he's being very arrogant. Which I didn't see that at all. I think he just wanted to open the debate and see what can come out of it um, because he thinks it's a lot needs changing. And if some, need, some can change out of that, then that's good. I hope we don't mind, Phil. I know we, we sort of said before that we wouldn't read out 
any of the comments, but I actually just want to read a little bit out from this George here, if that's okay. And I'll tell you why, because it's one of those where, well, let's hear from very young people, shall we? And we'll probably read more out from George in time, but he writes to us and says, I do have similar concerns to Judd about the future of the game, mainly due to its lack of reach to people my age. During a Zoom quiz I did with about five uni mates, I asked the question which snooker recently, which snooker player, sorry, recently made a thousand career centuries, and nobody was actually able to name any player. I do think there are people who are living back in the so-called golden age, even though I would guess the overall quality of play now is significantly better than it was then. George also says, I do think the dress code is something that I've never been able to get my head around, and Judd is right to call it out. Snooker has a tradition as a working class game. I have no idea why you need to dress like you were going for a black tie dinner to play it. Whether Judd's suggestion goes too far of polo shirts, I'm not sure, but uh, I was a bit annoyed when someone emailed in either to your podcast or Snooker Scene, sorry, cannot remember which, suggesting there should be a black tie dress code for spectators. I just thought to myself, <laughs> some people in the game really need to get out of the 80s and fast. Yeah, I can't see that happening for fans, frankly, uh, anytime soon. Although, of course, that's the nature of the changing of society. When you look back at those old clips from the 70s and 80s, the fans are so smartly dressed in the crowd, aren't they? Yeah. People generally were back in back in, back in the day. But, yeah, that's just one, one view. We'll, we'll read out more from George and others have contacted us as well. And they're kind of all saying similar-ish things that they wish more their young friends were into it so you know who knows we you know maybe we need a round table one day where a few of us get together or in the media or you know younger players maybe the younger member members of the media not me for example and say well what can we do to to to, to kind of take that focus a little bit more away from the the players we know the long time and a bit more to the young one maybe the broadcaster would help or maybe Again, rights are an issue. I know we said before about the big players naturally being on the, the main tables. That's sort of, you know, the commercial reality of the world. Maybe you know, have a choice and, you know, on a red button, you can see one of the, the, the young, the 19-year-olds that we've hardly seen before, you know. Well, yeah, that that was one of his points, really. And sort of, he, he, sort of, he mentioned Ken Doherty a lot. And it was, he wasn't trying to pick on Ken by any means. No. Um, but he, he just played that morning and he in the qualifiers and he was saying he'd sort of seen a lot of the world snooker tour social media and it was just all about Ken Doherty playing the 1997 world champion when they had Jamie Clark against Julian Boyko on as well which barely got mentioned and he was just saying there's how can how can you create new stars how can new stars be developed if you're concentrating so much on um sort of bygone eras really I mean Ken can still play to a good level but I think he's on with an invitational tour card, isn't he? He's, sort of, he's not competing to win anything um, other than the seniors. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he had, he had some interesting points. And as you say, I think that's what he just needs to um, get a discussion going because, I mean, it's, it's wider point. This is, not, this is not something that wearing a polo shirt will fix, but, you know, it just is a niche sport now, isn't it, Snooker? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't niche in the golden age. That's why it was the golden age. You know, my mum is my is my sort of go to for um, if she's heard of a sportsman, then he is in the public image because she doesn't follow sport really, but she knows the very famous ones. She'll know all the snooker players from the eighties, 
Um, she won't know any of the ones now, even though I'll t- mention them sometimes to her, but she won't remember them. Um, and it's same now. Like, I've got some mates who are into snooker, but they've just because they've followed it since they were kids. M- my mates at the minute, who I would describe as sort of general sports fans, they wouldn't be able to name four snooker players, I don't think. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not. It's not something that putting a polo shirt rather than a waistcoat on can fix, but I guess it's lots of little things. Hopefully they can just generally shift it into a more mainstream sport than a, a niche sport. And I guess that's always the battle and we'll try and keep, you know, promoting it as much as we can. But just to play devil's advocate a bit, I mean, the snooker scene writer, Marcus Stead, sent me a very interesting piece of information, which I put out on Twitter, about ITV4 audiences a few weeks ago. And I think something like 12 or 13 out of their top 15 shows for the week mm-hmm. was snooker. So we're doing something right, aren't we, at the same time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean Judd, said, Judd used the phrase something like stuck in a rut. And that, that, I don't think that's right. Like, it's, the sport's doing very well. It's just, it could, it's just where, will it, where, where is it going to go? I don't know. I mean, I would like to see the demographics of those um viewing figures um if they were available but but they are good they are good like i don't think anyone's suggesting sports dying or anything like that by any stretch um it's in a much better place than it was uh not that long ago so um yeah i don't want to sound like it's all doom and gloom by any stretch but um yeah i think the concern the concern if there is any concern is just um that it's an aging audience i suppose um and how that how that can be fixed well, Judd's piece was very interesting. We'll talk about it, as I say, more more in the summer when we'll obviously have more time to do these things. We won't have actual much live snooker or any live snooker in the opening part of the summer to focus on. Uh, it's not just about you, though, Phil, this podcast. It's a little bit about me as well. And uh, <laughs> Ronnie O'Sullivan <laughs> had some interesting things to say to me and my pieces up on Sporting Life. Two pieces from O'Sullivan, actually. One on Mark Selby uh, and... Uh, perhaps needing to get over, in Ronnie's words, that dramatic semi-final defeat last year. But one that's really um, got quite a lot of attention today, and I noticed a few players, Neil Robertson's one that's commented on it. I asked Martin Gould about it tonight. Ronnie's saying that he he really wants protection uh, during the World Championship from fans. He talks about, he used the word, crazy fans, he says, wanting an autograph or a selfie. And obviously, snooker fans are the lifeblood of the sport. And I happen to think people will be sensible um, and won't necessarily come up to these these snooker players, you know, during this period, obviously aware of COVID. But Ronnie's point is, it's mad outside the stage door. It's mad outside the hotel. It's mad outside pubs. And he wants some protection. Well, Martin Gould said to me tonight that it's already quite manic, I think the word he used about Sheffield. And if Ronnie wants that, he might have to get his own kind of protection. Whereas Ronnie's kind of saying, well, it's up to world snooker. I think there'll be a bit of a, a sensible kind of balance, won't there, Phil, really? I mean, Ronnie has understandable fears. And in fairness to Ronnie, he's been consistent in being, you know, one of those that are more of the worried types, really. And COVID is very bad. It's a killer disease. And he's talked to, to me about people in his own life, like his own children he keeps a distance from. 
he says that you know people are in his own family even some of them are anti it some of them think it's more of a conspiracy he's saying fair enough you know i'm not going to judge you for that but i'm much more cautious i don't want people coming up to me you can see what he's saying but you know i think maybe i'm very naive but i would think people in sheffield will be kind of sensible won't they we'd hope so yeah i mean um it, it's tricky when it just sort of gets out of you know, I'm not sure what like World Snooker could do or anything when about just him wandering around Sheffield, you know, that, unless they provide him with a bodyguard. It's not happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, he just, I think he just raised the concern. Um, it was more sort of like you wander past a pub garden that people can go in now. People are a bit drunk. St- see Ronnie O'Sullivan. They might go try and get an arm around him for a selfie. Yeah, you can see it happening for sure. He's a very famous bloke. Um, and yeah, just straight after these. Uh, restrictions have been lifted to an extent. Um, you know, pub gardens are, are filled with people drinking all day. Um, so, yeah, I can envisage it happening. But, yeah, you would hope and you would think, and I'm sure he'd be with someone who would maybe help keep the people at a distance. Um, but it's a tricky one, as I say, because, the, you know, people can't, Will Snooker can't police his movement. I'm sure they can help him in and out of the arena. But, uh yeah, they, they're not, I don't know if they're going to escort him to the hotel or anything like that. Maybe they are, I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's a tricky one. They're, they're legitimate, legitimate concerns. I know his mum was very ill with it, um, like seriously ill with it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, I, don't, I don't think this is him sort of um, saying things for effect or anything. He, he, I think you said before he, he was very passionate about it and uh, it's a genuine concern. Yep, indeed. And, uh, well, you see, you can read my piece on Sporting Life. You can, of course, read your excellent Judd Trump piece. I think it's probably pinned on your Twitter, is it? I think I saw it at one stage. It is still at the top there, yeah. Yeah, so there's, if you can go to Phil Haig's Twitter page, and um, I'm sure a quick Google search will find you. It said it's been widely talked about throughout Sleuth. Judd himself has, has linked to it on Twitter. And, uh, well... Just over forty-eight hours to go, Phil. How how are your excitement levels now? Are you are you are you kind of pacing yourself? I noticed that that that, uh, that World Snooker on their Judgment Day coverage at the end had a sort of clock counting down, just over two days. You know, it's um it's an exciting time, isn't it? Really is. I think I think the draw is when it really sort of my excitement then peaks um, beforehand, um, which is now only just a matter of hours away. So yeah. Um, and then you sort of all those qualifiers you think oh it'd be interesting to see who he gets but for all of them really um, and there's a few the top 16 guys who you think oh they could do with maybe a slightly favourable draw maybe so um, yeah when that comes out tomorrow I'll be starting to get very excited and then you know it's uh, two days away um, so yeah we'll all be sat on Saturday morning ready to go Indeed, we indeed we will. And just to say that there is, of course, blanket television coverage on Eurosport, which I think most of us regard as the TV home for snooker, but also on the BBC, which is very important for a number of obvious reasons as well. Free to air coverage throughout. And it's good to see BBC Four carrying on their uh, recent uh, trend of showing snooker. So there's going to be a live programme from seven until nine every night. And I said before, you know, I know the BBC has its faults, but the position I'm taking this time, like the last few big tournaments, is going into it thinking positively of them, 
of course we'll call them out when necessary, but actually, I know we said it before, but they are showing a mountain of, of hours of coverage of this and the sports that were killed for that. You know, it's going to be on from 10 in the morning till about midday. Then they're off for an hour for politics, I think. Then one till six on BBC Two. Then seven till nine on BBC Four. It's on the red button throughout, online. You know, it's on the highlights in the evening, snooker extra in the early hours. We're doing okay, Phil, as snooker fans going into this magical marathon in Sheffield. Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right about other sports. I mean, nothing gets close to it on that for a lot of the time. Um, so, yeah, and it has got a lot of stick um, from a lot of from players, to be fair. Um, yeah. So it, a lot of it is fair. Um, but, yeah, you can't argue with the, the amount they cover it. And... Uh, and some of it is really good. Like uh, I think, obviously, some um, criticisms are fair, but they're quite specific, and uh, a lot of people will be enjoying that coverage. And if it wasn't on the BBC, you know, that would be a huge detriment to the game. So um, there are certainly some massive positives about it being on there. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, shall we depart then? Have we said it all? Have we got even more to say? I think that might be it. You know. <laughs> I think so. I mean, it's all going to change very soon with the draw, and then we're going to be underway. So, um, yeah, let's get let's get this out there as soon as possible. I will be with you on Saturday, as I say, to give you a flavour, hopefully more than a flavour, even at the start of the World Championship. We'll have our views on the draw, uh, who we might think will win the tournament. Although I'm saying now, I'm sticking with Judd. By the way, I know <laughs> Michael Holt took the mick out of me, but I'm not going to be swayed. I know it's boring. I know it's predictable, but I'm sorry. That's what I'm going to say. Um, but uh, we'll find out where you're thinking now, Phil, maybe on Saturday. But we look forward to that and the start of the tournament. You have a couple of days to get your views in on the actual World Championship, what you're hoping for, your hopes, your dreams for the Crucible. If you're going, what you're looking forward to, what you're not, perhaps, what you what might be wary about. Uh, you know, your, your Sheffield experience, what you're hoping for please do contact us. Tweet us at Talking Snooker or email us at talkingsnooker at yahoo.com. But for now, Phil, I think that's it from us. So goodbye. Thanks on behalf of me and all Snooker fans for all the brilliant work you've done during the qualifiers. What else have you got lined up now? Anything else between now and then? or specifically? There's a sort of, as you mentioned before, there's usually a media day on Friday, which isn't happening, but There'll be a few Zooms with some players then. Um, so, yeah, a handful of the top 16 I'll speak to um, on Friday. Um, maybe one or two others we'll see. But the draw and the schedule will uh, depend on a lot of things. But uh, I'm sure I'll speak to Dave Gilbert. I always speak to Dave Gilbert. He'll be on board at some point. So look out for something from him. How's Dave How's Dave feeling the last time you, you spoke? How are his feelings ahead of the big show? He's good, yeah. No, he's looking forward to it. Glad back to some normality with the the crowds back. So a uh, um, bit of pressure on him really because he's defending that great run to the semi finals last year. Um, but yeah, I think he's he's in a much better place than he was earlier in the season. So um, I expect him to go well. Well, we look forward to the tournament very, very much. It is one of the great events of the sporting year. I think I said in my Metro piece that you'll hopefully be able to read in the paper. And on the digital editions on Thursday, the tournament's always had a, a hypnotic hold on the British public. 
and it really always has and that and that remains and that'll be the case for the 17 days to come until saturday then when we join you again thanks very much indeed for your company here on talking snooker from phil and from me cheerio for now sports social podcast network <laughs>